Welcome to Connection Church's podcast. This message is part four in the six-part series, 180, Turn Your Life Around. Guest speaker Milan Turner talks about the importance of the Word of God in your life and how to apply it effectively. God has given us His playbook, His owner's manual, and His autobiography, but seldom do we take advantage of this asset. How would our lives and attitudes differ if we were saturated with the Word of God? Well, good morning. Thank you, Bo. Well, he's made a lot of progress in three or four weeks, hasn't he? Looks a lot better than he did the first week. Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. So thankful for the opportunity to come and, and speak to you. Uh, tell you guys, like I told, we had the uh, men's conference just a few weeks ago, and it was, it was awesome. What a blessing. Uh, God showed up big, and our guys had a great time in the Lord. And uh, we had numerous salvations. I think we ended up with a all together, probably 30-something, almost 40 decisions for Christ uh, during that weekend. So we can give the Lord a hand clap for that, can't we? We pray? Okay. All right. But I told those guys, I said, I'm not a preacher. I'm a football coach. And so I told them, I'm going to be your coach for, for Friday night and Saturday morning. So I guess I'll tell you guys the same. I appreciate you letting me be here. I'm just going to be your coach this morning. Uh, so thankful for Brandy giving me the opportunity to be up here and, and, and just to teach God's Word to you. Very excited about that. As we get started, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you this question and, and see what your answer is to it. What is the least read book in the world? What do you think is the least read book in the world? You can respond. What do you think? Okay, the book of Revelations. How about a whole book? What do you think a whole book? What do you think is the least read? A lot of people, you think the Bible, how many of you think the Bible is the least read book? A lot of you? Okay. It's not. It's the owner's manual in your car. That's the least read book in the world. And uh, I do want to ask this question. Is there anybody in here who's actually read one from front to back? Because if there is, I want to talk to you when we get through, because that's strange if you've actually done that. Um, When do we go to the owner's manual in our car? When something's broke, right? When something needs to be fixed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sad, but, but a lot of believers, they treat the Bible the same way. They treat God the same way. You know, uh, they don't go to him until something's broke. You know, we struggle through life, dirtied by the world and uh, with our defiled hearts. And, and with what I believe is a lot of people have a desire to truly know God, but I believe they have very little desire to prepare themselves to know God. Uh, and to experience him the way that he intended for us to experience him. You know, I tell my football team all the time, I say the will to win is not nearly as important as the will to prepare to win. You see, if I'm standing in front of 75 football players and I ask the question, how many of you want to win a state championship? How many of those guys you think are going to raise their hand? All of them, 100%. See, that's not a good question. The question I ask them over and over and over is this. How many of you are willing to do what it takes to prepare to win a state championship? Lifting weights, being at every workout, doing your sprint work, being at practice, giving your very best Monday practice, Tuesday practice, Wednesday practice, Thursday practice, going out there every Friday night for four quarters, 48 minutes, give everything you've got. Now, how many of you are really and truly, think about it, willing to prepare to win a state championship? That's the better question. I want to tell you this, the Bible is the believer's playbook for life. Amen? Uh, I had a freshman running back who uh, was a true freshman last year at Georgia. He had to take a credit in June 
to finish up his high school credits. He couldn't report to Athens until like July the 8th or something like that last year. And he ended up starting as a true freshman at tailback and was the leading rusher for the University of Georgia this year. And I talked to Sean about, about what was the difficulty. I would text. We would talk each day. And he was telling me, obviously, he doesn't have a problem running the football if you've ever watched him. That's not a, an issue for him. But it was learning what? Learning the playbook. And one of the most difficult things was learning all the passing game because the running backs are so involved in protecting the quarterback and in the blocking. And he told me, he said, Coach, I've, I've had to spend anywhere from 20 to 30 hours a week in film room watching film and reading the playbook. He had the, he had the month of July. Football started like August the 3rd, and they played their first game right there at the end of August, the University of Georgia. And he had to learn a Division I SEC football offensive playbook. Uh, Hudson Mason, who will be a true freshman at Georgia next year. You know, Georgia's down to like one quarterback. They sent him the playbook as soon as he signed, and they're saying uh, in the paper that he's spending 30 to 40 hours a week learning the Georgia playbook so that when he gets there this summer, which actually he's just now gotten there, he'll know the offense. They say Peyton Manning has spent 40 to 50 hours a week just in film preparation and learning the playbook for the Indianapolis Colts. And I say all that to say that this is God's playbook for our life, the Bible. And what's interesting is those people are spending all that time learning their offensive playbooks. Uh, people will spend so much time on their jobs, going to conferences, reading books, learning their trade, learning how to do things, how to become better. People will go to the bookstore and buy self-help books, how to do this, how to do that. They'll buy cookbooks, home improvement books, how to build a house. And they'll read and they'll read and they'll learn all this stuff, get all this knowledge. But what's sad is so many believers neglect what is the most important book you see, I, one of the greatest things about this book, it separates it from all others. Not only is it a living book, it comes with the author. Amen? It's the only book that comes with the author. You can go to Books a Million, buy a book, the author's not coming with it. He's in New York somewhere. This comes with the author, and I'm thankful for that. You know, in, in the Christian home, we've got marriages that are struggling. We've got our youth being ravaged by the world. We've got believers exhibiting very little joy and peace. Very few believers walking in power. We've got Christians that show little or no change in their lives. We've got a church, a church that's full of religion and legalism rather than love and life. Amen. We've got sin running rampant in the church. And here's the bottom line. God's people do not know his word. Therefore, they don't know him. They don't know his ways and they don't know his character. No change, no Jesus. I've said it many times. It's not what you take out of a man that changes him, it's what you put into him. You see, you can lay down bad habits for a while, but unless you get full of Jesus, unless you get in his word and allow Jesus to change you, you won't change. You won't change. Jesus is not going to conform to us and to our will. Amen? He's a holy God. He's not going to do it. He desires for us to conform to him and to his will. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them to Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to continue talking about this 180 spiritual change that Brandon's been talking about over the last few weeks. And in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to go back and read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1 and look at really kind of what happened and what made this change, talking about change in our lives. I'm going to talk to you, obviously, today about the importance of the Word of God. We're going to talk about the importance of the Word of God. Look in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, 
that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. See, first of all, we have to realize that the people of God had fallen into sin. They had become captives. They had become slaves. And sad enough, we have believers who are still in bondage and in captivity enslaved into their old lifestyles and into the ways of the world. So in verse 4 it says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy. Aren't you thankful that God keeps his covenant and his mercy? With those who what? Who love you and observe your commandments, which are the word of God. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8, remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper in this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to your people in Jesus' name, amen. You see, we have a, a Jewish man, Nehemiah. The Jews have been held captive and he gets burdened over the plight of his people. And he gets burdened over their separation from God because of the sin that's in their life. So what does he do? He returns to the one absolute in his life, which is the covenant word of God. And so Nehemiah begins to fast and pray. There's a couple verses I want to focus on as we go into the word. I want to start by looking at verse 5. Look there in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Nehemiah. Here's the thing that we have to realize. He says, I pray, Lord God of heaven... O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. What did Nehemiah know? He knew, first of all, that God keeps covenant. He's a covenant God. He knew that God would keep his promises. And he knew that he kept his promises with who? With his children. Who what? Who love him and keep his word. I love the Bible so much, and I love how God, so many things are conditional. If this, then that. If this, then that. See, Nehemiah knew that if... They repented and turned to God and got in God's covenant word and stayed in line with God's covenant word. If they loved the Lord, then they knew God was going to keep his covenant. If they loved him, kept his word, then a loving God was going to move in their lives. And they knew that he would always keep his promises. And then you move down to verse 7. So what does he do? What is is the next step? Because of what Nehemiah knew, he praised God's word. Look, he he says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments or the statutes. So he goes into verse eight and says, remember I pray the word. See, Nehemiah knew from the word of God this. He knew that God was merciful. 
He knew that God was forgiving, loving, restoring, powerful, and strong for his children if they were humble, repentant, and had a contrite heart. It was when Nehemiah met with God in his covenant word that the supernatural began to happen for Nehemiah and for God's people. It was when Nehemiah met with God in his covenant word that change came to the lives of God's people, that hope came to God's people, that salvation came to God's people. See, here's something we gotta realize, folks. You can't keep doing things the same way and expect different results. Amen? You can't keep doing things the same way. I've been saved for 23 years. And I can honestly tell you that in those 23 years, probably about the last 18 months to two years, it's been amazing uh, the change that God has done in my life. And it's amazing that for 23 years, and God saved me from, from anything and everything. I mean, I was the worst of the worst. And it's amazing that for so many of those years, knowing God and, and, and knowing about God and knowing about the Word of God and knowing right and what I was supposed to do, it's amazing that for so many of those 23 years, I was not committed to preparing myself in God's Word. I was not prepared to go in and be in God's Word like, his, like the Word teaches us. I was not preparing myself. And there are so many struggles and so many things, issues in my life that could have been dealt with that weren't. And here I knew the truth. I knew God, but I wasn't preparing myself on a daily basis. It's amazing in the last two years, some of the things that God has shown me and taught me. I look back with great regret because I wasn't in God's word. I wanna tell you something this morning. There's no substitute and there's no quick fixes. No substitute and no quick fixes. Let's talk about the importance of God's word. What did Nehemiah know? Look at John 1.1. Turn in the New Testament to John 1.1. We have to establish one thing first and foremost because it's the most important part of what we're gonna talk about. Many of you probably know this verse. John 1.1, it says this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's like I talked about at the very beginning. This word is alive, it's living. This is God. It said the word was with God, and the word what? Is God. So we have to establish that first. What is the importance of the word of God? Well, here's the first thing I want you to know. The word of God is important for us to know him. And there's a big difference. You see, a lot of people know about God, but a lot of people don't know God. And there's a difference in that. It's like I talked about with the playbook for my quarterbacks or for any of my players. It's not enough for them just to have the playbook. I have to get the playbook where? In them. It's not enough for my quarterback to walk around and say, I've got the playbook. It's not enough just to even be on the team. He's on the team. He's got a uniform. He's got a helmet, shoulder pads. He's got all the gear. And he's got a playbook. But he can't help the team. He will not be successful until what? until he learns the playbook. He's useless. He can have the best equipment. He can look great in a uniform. He could have lifted weights and done all those things. He's got to get in the playbook. He's got to know what to do on the field. So it's important that we know him. And how does that happen? Look at 1 John. We're going to look at verses uh, 3 and 4 of, of chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Look what it says. It says, Now by this we know that we know him. Here's how you know if you know him. If we keep his commandments. Verse four, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So what does it take? We need to know him. Well, first thing you need to know is his word, study. 
What does the Bible say about that? Look in Psalms 119.15. If we're going to know him, what do we have to do? Psalms 119.15, it tells us. Turn there with me. We've got to know him. It says this, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. Then turn over to Psalms chapter 1. Psalms chapter 1, verse 2. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates, he studies, the word says, day and night. You see, it's not enough to know about God. You need to know him, and you need to know him for yourself. Here's the problem. You got a lot of believers that are walking around, and their knowledge of God is through what somebody else knows. It's what someone else has told them about God. Or they've been to, some, they've been to church, and they've heard about him on Sunday morning through a message. But you see, that's not what God wants. That's not a personal relationship. That's secondhand knowledge. That's what the preacher told me about God, or that's what my mom or dad told me about God. And see, Jesus Christ went to the cross, died for you, and saved you, not only to keep you from hell, but because he loved you and desired a personal daily relationship with you. And you can't have a relationship with someone if you don't know them. You have to know his word. That's how you get to know God. You've got to study. The, the writer said, I meditate on his word day and night. And a lot of folks will look at me like I'm crazy or look at you like you're crazy when you start saying that. Oh, I know that. Yeah, you've got to be in the word. What's amazing is how we'll struggle through life and we won't do that one thing. We'll read the Bible one day or you got your nice devotion book, which that's great because I've got one too. But you got a devotion book and you'll do a devotion. You might miss a day or two. You might do a family devotion once in a while, hopefully. But when are we getting in the Word? When are we spending time getting to know the one that went to the cross and died for us? When are we spending time actually learning the character and the ways of God so that through the power of His Holy Spirit, this Word can go into our hearts, be planted, and produce fruit and produce change? We've got to know his word. We've got to get to know him. And then it talks about obedience. Verse 4 in 1 John chapter 2 is talking about obedience. If you say that you know him, but you're not keeping his commandments. You know what that means? It says if you know Christ, but there's no change in you, you're a liar. That's what 1 John is saying. You're saying something. You know, my dad used to say it all the time. Actions speak louder than words. You know, you got folk. I'm a Christian. Well, I go to this church. I'm this, I'm that. Well, let's, let's, is there fruit? Is there change? Is God really a part of your life? Obedience to God's word tests your knowledge of him. Genuine love for God and your true relationship with him. There's an old saying, to know and not to do is not to know. To know and not to do is not to know. In other words, it's not good enough to say I know something, but then you don't do it. You don't live it out. It's not a part of your life. You might as well not even know it. It's useless. One of Satan's greatest lies is this. You're okay. One of Satan's greatest lies is you're okay. I'm doing fine. Things are going well. Guess what? The Bible sits over there and collects dust. I'm not getting to know my Lord and Savior. I'm getting dirtied by the world every day. I'm allowing the things of the world to, to conform me and to influence my life. And I'm living a life that's unchanged with no power, distant from God. And then we end up in that place. We call it a desert or whatever you want to call it. We'll end up in that place and we wonder, how in the world did I get there? How in the world did this happen? 
And it doesn't mean that walking close to God keeps you from storms and trials, no. But I can tell you this, walking close to God, you can get in the storm of the trial, and it's not important about when it's going to be over or how you're going to get out of it. It's not important what you don't know because of what you do know. Amen? You can get in a storm and a trial and a desert, anything, but because you've been in the Word, because the character of God is in you, because you've gotten to know your Lord and Savior, and in a personal, close, and powerful way, you can be in the worst of times, and you can still have His supernatural peace and joy in your heart, and not worry about when I'm coming out of the storm or how I'm coming out of the storm, simply because He lives in you, and you know you're okay and you're held. Why? Because His Word tells you so. Amen? So we need to know him. The importance of the word is that you and I need to get to know our personal Savior. Too many believers, they come to the altar, they come to the cross. The same power for salvation, it doesn't just stop there. You see, and it all depends on your response and mine. When you talk about someone getting saved, you look at the power of the cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the perfect sacrifice for you and me. Aren't you thankful God gave his very best? He gave his best. His son, Jesus Christ. But you see, the power of the cross for salvation depends on your response. You have a choice to accept Christ as Lord and Savior or to reject Christ. It doesn't change the fact that the power is there. It's just whether or not you receive it. You can come forward. You can ask Christ into your heart. And just like that, you can be saved. Or you can say no, go your own way, reject Christ but it still doesn't change the fact that the power is there. And then once you get saved, the power is still there, but so many believers, so many believers don't walk in that power. So many believers neglect their personal relationship with God. They get saved, and they continue on their way, and they may go to church every Sunday. They may tithe every Sunday the rest of their life. They may be involved in this, this Bible group and work in the kitchen and doing this and doing that. But are they developing their personal, individual relationship with Jesus Christ so that he can grow them and change them and make them into what he wants them to be so that they can take on the character of God and the fruit of the Spirit can come forth in their life and then they can be a blessing to others and win more people to Christ. You know what's that? You know what is a true tale that there's not much change in the life of believers? You know that 98% of professing Christians never lead another person to Christ. 98% never lead another person to Christ. To Christ. That means most Christians are going through all the motions, but they've not gotten to truly know their Savior. Because if you truly get to know Jesus, you can't help but tell people about him. You can't help it. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're a coach. I don't care if you're a doctor, a lawyer, a hairstylist, a teacher. It doesn't matter what you do. You'll find a way. Because you can't help but brag on Jesus. And see, that's something I'm so thankful uh, for the opportunity in my life. You see, people talk about, well, public school, you can't pray with them and you can't do this. Baloney. You can too. I've been at ECI for five years as a head football coach. We pray with those kids every weightlifting class before we lift, after we lift, and I take this Bible and I open it every Friday and we do devotion and I preach the Word of God to them and I tell them about Jesus and how they can get saved on a public school campus. Anytime we get on TV or the radio, we're going to brag on Jesus. You know why? Because it's about him. You know who gave me that job? Jesus gave it to me. You know who gave you your job? Jesus. And if they don't like it and they want to fire me, that's fine. God will find me another job. But when you come to know the personal Savior that died for you, you can't help but. There's no excuse. 
Paul said, not with words of men, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. You see, it's not about me convincing someone of Jesus. All I can do is brag on Jesus, and the results are up to him. Amen? But we need to know him, and we need to know his word. You don't have to be a preacher or a Bible scholar to lead someone to Christ. Just tell them, hey, I used to be this. Jesus came into my life, and now I'm that. Amen? We've got to get to know him. You've got to know him. Then we, we, we have to experience him. Look at James 4, 8. Look at James chapter 4, verse 8. Not only do we need to get to know him, we need to experience him. You know, and I said this earlier, too many believers are living off of other people's experiences or they're living off their own past experiences. They're living off the experiences that the preacher's telling them about or they're living off the experiences that someone else has told them about or they've possibly had experiences with God, God encounters in their life, God showed up big and this was years ago and they're living off of that. Well, I remember when. But you see, God wants to encounter you and I every day. He wants to have an encounter. He wants to have a relationship. He loves you. Listen, he loved you so much, he sent his only son to die for you. Can you think of any greater love than that? That person that loves you that much wants a relationship with you. Why do we resist? Why would you not want to grow in that relationship? Why would I not want to grow in that relationship? Why would I not want to prepare myself and get in his word so that his living word can get into my heart and change me into what he wants me to be? James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. So first, I have to draw near to God, then he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, you must draw near to God. How? You got to spend time in his word. Remember John 1, 1? What did it say? It said, for God is the word. And so if it says draw near to him, how do I draw near to him? Well, I can't go to heaven yet. So how do I get close to this personal God that loved me so much that he sent his only son to die for me? I've got to get in his living word because this, the Bible says, this is him. This is God. It is his word. It is who he is. And so as I get into his word, I'm drawing near to him. And if I'll do that day and night and get in the word and get in the word and get in the word, I'm drawing near and I'm drawing near and I'm drawing near. We said earlier that he's a covenant God. Isn't that what Nehemiah said? He said, God, you are a covenant God. I'm praying your word. We've messed up. We've blown it. We want to get back to you. We want to get right. We're going to repent. We're going to make this thing right. We're going to get close to you. The Bible says, draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. As I get in the word and get in the word and put the word in me, I get to know God's character and his ways. The spirit of God gets strong in me and I get closer and closer to my personal savior, Jesus Christ. And I begin to experience him on a daily basis. And sometimes it may be a big wow thing. and Sometimes it's just his presence. Sometimes it's just his, his anointing. Sometimes it's just his love and his peace that comes over you in the midst of whatever it is you're going through. Getting your day started and finishing your day in the word to experience him. I want you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles 15.2. 2 Chronicles 15.2. We're going to talk about how we can experience him. Second Chronicles 15, 2 Chronicles 15.2. It says, And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen, 
It says, he went out to meet Asa and said to him, hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while what? While you are with him. If you seek him, what? He will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Again, if this, then that. God's word. He never leaves anything to question, folks. He's not trying to puzzle you. He's not trying to get you to run through a maze to get to him. He makes it so simple. Salvation couldn't be any more simple. The salvation is so incredible. You know, I've heard it put this way, you know, just, just how awesome and simple, simple yet complex God is. The gospel of Jesus Christ, you see, it's so shallow that even a small child can come in and find Jesus and not drown. Yet it's so deep that the greatest scholars can't touch the bottom. It's so incredible that someone who can't read or write can come to Christ and get saved, and someone with four PhDs can completely miss God. See, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. It's an amazing God that we serve. So in 2 Chronicles, it tells us, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, what's his promise? See, God can't lie. His promise is that if you seek him, then he will be found by you. Where do you seek him? See, what are you looking for in life? Everybody's on a journey, amen? Everybody's on a search for truth. This is the only truth there is. There is no other truth. You can't find truth on CNN or Fox. You can't find truth on talk radio or, or talk TV. You can't find truth in the words of man, in men's counsel. You see, in the book of James, he talks about that in chapter 4. James doesn't call it the counsel men. You know what he calls worldly wisdom? He calls it demonic wisdom. If you're looking for answers anywhere other than God, then you're attracting the, the enemy into your life. You're allowing Satan to influence your thoughts and how you live your life because this is the only truth that there is. So what is the process there to experience him? First, you have to seek him. He's with us while we're with him. Remember this, God is holy. God's not gonna frolic with you while you frolic with the world. God's not gonna frolic with you or me while we frolic with the world. He's not gonna do it. We've got, the Bible says, be ye separate. The Bible says, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Do not conform to this world. Be ye separate. So you've got to seek him, then you've got to spend time with him. If we will seek him in the word, the Bible says he will be found. See, we want God to come to our level instead of humbling ourselves before a holy God and meeting with him in his word. So we like to make up our own minds and our own plans. You know, James talked about that. He says, you receive not, for you ask not. You know why a lot of times we don't ask? Because we've already made our mind up. We don't go to God for the things we need to because we've decided how we're going to do it. And most of the time, we mess it up. And then he says, you receive not, for you ask amiss. We ask for our own personal desires, led by contentious, selfish spirits and, and the desires of the flesh, instead of being spirit-led. And the only way to change that is how? You've got to get in God's word. You've got to allow the living word of God to change your mind and your heart and your words. And then it says there in 2 Chronicles, it says, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. You can't forsake God and the word of God. How many of us forsake God and miss out on the abundant life that he promised? Man, how many of us, if we could see it on a movie screen, I wonder how many opportunities we've missed out on for God to do incredible things in our lives, but also for God to use us in incredible ways in the lives of others. 
simply because we did it our own way and missed out on the leading and direction of God. And there's a process. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. Look at Isaiah 1, 16. Here's the process of the Word. Here's how the Word works. It's the best example, I think, in the Bible. How does the Word work? When we get in the Word, what does it do? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings, cease to do evil. So what is it that happens, the process of the Word? First of all, we need to be washed in the Word. The Word cleanses us, and then the Word gives us strength to put away evil. So the Word washes you, the Word cleanses you, and then the Word gives you the strength to put away evil. James 4, 7. Humble yourself before God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Look at 1 Peter 1.22. Look over in 1 Peter 1.22. 1 Peter 1.22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, that's obeying the word, through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with what? with a pure heart. So the Word washes us, it cleanses us, it gives us strength to put away evil, and it purifies your heart. It purifies your heart. You see, Jesus taught the disciples to wash each other's feet. Why? Because they wore robes as they traveled, but what would get dirty constantly? Their feet. You realize we get dirty as you go through life and go through the world. Every day, you're exposed to things, and you get dirty, and you need to get in God's Word. You need to get in His Word, and you need to let it wash you. You need to let it cleanse you. Let it strengthen you and let it purify your heart. So we need to get to know him. We need to experience him. We need to understand him. Look at Isaiah 55. We've got to understand God. He wants us to have understanding. And understanding comes through the word. Look at Isaiah 55. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10. And I used a bit of this earlier as we were talking. Isaiah 55 verses 8, excuse me, 8 through 11 understanding God. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. See, first, we've got to understand that God's word is seed. If you look in your Bibles in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, that's what Jesus says as he begins the parable of the seeds. He says, the seed is my word. Look, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. So get a picture of that. The word of God is seed to be planted in your heart. It is the source of all saving life and growth possibilities transmitted from the Father into your life. That's this Bible. It is seed, the source of all life and all change possibilities transmitted from God the Father into the life of the believer. It is the source of life and all change possibilities that can happen in your life transmitted from the Father to you and I. It's seed. 
What's interesting about that is we also know, we know that God is the Word. The Word is God. We know that the Word is seed that goes into our hearts. We know that the Bible says that, that Jesus is what? The light of the world. We also know that the light does what? It gets rid of the darkness. The light has overcome the darkness. So if the Word of God is God and it's seed, and I plant the seed, the Word of God in my heart, which is light, then it casts out all the darkness. Wow, you get a picture of that? Did anybody get that? That's incredible. It's seed. It's the Word of God. It's Jesus So the seed of Jesus, the word, I put it in my heart, which is light, it casts out darkness. So if I'm putting this in there, it's going to bring to light all the junk. It's going to expose everything. Listen to me. It's going to expose any sin in your life. It's going to expose bad thoughts. It's going to expose your bad attitudes. It's going to convict of the words you say. It's going to bring all that junk to light. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people don't want that. They don't want to get confronted on their sin. They don't want to get confronted on a bad attitude. They don't want to get confronted on the words they speak. So guess what they do? They neglect the word because they know in their heart, they know what it's going to do. The problem is, if you really know what it's going to do, you need to run to it and get it right. Let it wash you and cleanse you and purify you and give you strength. It is seed. We know what seed does. You put seed in the ground, it grows. And the Bible says good seed will come back 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Let God's word go in there and clean all the junk. Let it get all the weeds out. You know, Weeds come out easier when you put water on them. You know that? You wet the weeds, they'll pull easier. You wash your heart with the Word of God, you can get those weeds out. and They get out a lot easier. Let God clean you up. And then let God put His power in you. Let Him change you and make you what you need to be so that you can do Galatians 5.1. So you can stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has set you free and not be entangled with a yoke of bondage again. See, let him clean you up with that seed. Let that seed, which is God, which is light, which repels darkness, go into your heart. Get the weeds out. Get the junk out. Strengthen you, grow you, and set you on a path from glory to glory. And so you don't have to go back and be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. That way you can stand fast in that liberty by which Christ set you free at the cross. You see, if you sin, you've cho- as a believer, you've chosen to sin. You don't have to. You've chosen to. Because Christ has given us the power over sin. And that only happens in his word. Stop living on past experiences. Stop living on someone else's experience. Experience God for yourself. The seed of God's word brings life and growth to the believer. Without God's word continually in you, there is death and stagnation in the life of the believer. You see, the Bible teaches us that when the lust of the flesh the desires of the flesh meet with temptation and you're not prepared. We talked about this a few weeks ago. If you don't see when temptation comes, temptation in and of itself is not a bad thing. It doesn't even have a bad or a negative connotation. Temptation is simply like it's a test. And one of two things is going to happen. When temptation comes, it's going to be a test unto righteousness or it's going to be a test unto sin. And all of that depends on your response. If a temptation comes, I'm in the Word. God has strengthened me. The temptation comes, I resist. Based on God's Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I resist. I've passed the test. I've passed the test. My faith is strengthened. But if I'm not in God's Word and I've not prepared myself, temptation comes. And listen, it meets with the desire of my flesh. The two join. You know what the Bible says? It says sin is birthed and then death. See, the lust of the flesh meeting with a temptation when you aren't prepared through being in God's word, gives birth to twins. Sin and death, they run together. 
So then sin comes in your life, and then death comes in your life. Death to what? Death to your relationships. Could be in your marriage, with your children, with people you work with, your friends. How about death to your testimony? Why? Because you were not walking close to God. You were not in the Word. You, you bought into Satan's lie. You're okay. You're okay. Let the Bible lay there. You can read it. You're going to church Sunday. You'll get what you need. You're okay. Lies and deception. Isaiah teaches this. I want to give you three things that Isaiah taught us right there in verses 8 through 11. All increase of life in his love comes by his word. All increase of life in his love comes by the word. To be filled with God's love and to have an increase of life. Jesus said, I came to give life and give life more abundant. That's right after he said what? Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Anybody in here had been stolen from or robbed by Satan in their life? Has Satan ever robbed you of joy and peace? Has he ever robbed you of opportunities that you know God had for you, but you missed it because you did it your own way? I'm the only one? Okay. Well, learn from my mistakes then, okay? That's what he does. But Jesus says, I came to give life and give life more abundantly. Now, how can you experience his abundant life if you don't even know him? How can I experience the abundant life if I don't know the one who's come to give it? So he gives all increase of abundant life in his love. Through what? Through his word. Secondly, our response to his word gives place for his blessing. We see it all through the word. Our response to his word gives place for blessing. How? He said, if you'll draw near to me, what? I'll draw near to you. He said, if you'll seek me, guess what? You'll find me. Amen? Our response to his word. He said, if you, to be obedient. He said, if you say that you know me, but you don't keep my word, you're a liar. You can't know me and not know my word. Why? Because he said, I am the word. You can't do that. It doesn't work. And when received, God's word of promise, listen, will never be barren. He said his word will never return void. When you've received his word of promise, it'll never be barren. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Look there with me. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 15 through 17. Listen to what he says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is what? Passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You see, why do we so often choose the world over a daily personal relationship with Jesus Christ? The way of the world brings death and destruction and separation of God. But so often, we choose the world. You see, the picture there is of someone oftentimes trying to hold on to both, and you can't do it. Too many believers are trying to hold on to God with one hand and hold on to the world with the other, and God won't allow it. Remember I told you earlier, God's not going to frolic with you while you're frolicking with the world. The Bible, Jesus said, be hot or cold, not lukewarm, lest I spew you from my mouth. He's saying, hey, go all out for me. It's all or nothing, guys. I do a devotion with some guys on Friday mornings at 8 a.m. and some guys that are dealing with issues in their lives and they've had some addictions. And I told them, listen, we're all recovering addicts, every one of us. Everybody in this room is a recovering addict to something. 
It doesn't just have to be alcohol and drugs. It can be money and greed and pride and all kinds. You're, you're an addict of something. You need delivered from something. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for you. Amen? Okay, three amens. All right. We're getting somewhere. But, but I was telling those guys this, the, the same thing about, you know, trying to hang on to God in the world and being lukewarm and, and, and being hot and cold. And, uh, and I told those guys, I said, you know, Jesus is, is inviting us to burn for him. Go one way or the other. Go all out for him. Stop trying to hold on to the world and hold on to God because he's not going to do it. Because he's a jealous God, because he's a holy God. And he's not going to have anything to do with sin. And here's the thing I told those guys. God's not just going to show up for you and just take away the, the things that you wanted to take away. God's not going to just show up in your life and just take away alcohol. God's not going to just show up and take away lust of the eyes or the flesh. God wants all of you. He's not Burger King. He's not a fast food drive through folks. He wants a complete, total personal relationship with you. And here's, his, here's what he says. If you'll come to draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. You know what he's saying? If you'll give all of you to me, he said, I want all your junk, all of it. He's willing to make a trade. He's willing to make a trade. He did it at the cross with salvation. Jesus said, I'll trade your sinful life and I'll give you my righteousness. What a trade. Are you thankful for that? He said, I'll take all of your sin and your filth. I don't care how horrible you've been. He said, I'll take that and I'll give you my righteousness. And all you got to do is receive it. Wow. Because if, if, if you had to pay for it, we couldn't afford it. And he's saying that in our Christian lives today. He said, listen, come to my cross. Come to the word. Let the word effectively work in you. We're going to talk about that briefly. He says, let it work in you. Let it change you. I'll take all the mess. I got to have all of you, though. God's saying, I want all of you. And if you'll give you, if you'll give all of you to me, you know what God's saying? I'll give all of me to you. If you'll give it all to me, I'm not going to be used. God's not going to be manipulated. Amen? God's not just going to be used by you to help you on a final or to help you with one little marital problem here or to help you with a job issue or to help pay a bill when you need it paid. That's not, what, that's not the God we serve. Is, the death, is his death on the cross that frivolous? Is it that menial to us that we're just going to use and manipulate God when things are going wrong, when we need something, when in, when in reality he's offering you something, he's offering me something so much greater. He's saying, give me all of you, all of it. I want everything. I want your pride. I want your issues. I want your bondage, your, all that stuff. We're going to deliver you. We're going to clean you up. And he's saying, I'm going to give you all of me. I'm going to give you all my love. I'm going to give you all my peace, all my joy. He said, I'm going to give you the power to overcome. I'm going to make you more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. He's saying, that's what I want to do in your life. And he's saying, how do you, how do, you do it? You've got to get to know him. You've got to experience him. You've got to understand him. He wants to develop a personal relationship with you and I beyond anything that you and I can even imagine or comprehend. The love of God. Let's talk about the result. This is the last thing. We're going to close right here. The result. Let's talk about the result of getting in God's Word. Look at 1 John 2, 5. We looked at verses 3 and 4. I want to look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. We read verses 3 and 4. It said, Now this, by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But verse 5, what is the result of getting in God's Word? But whoever keeps His Word, truly the love of God is perfected 
in him. This word perfected means to complete, to accomplish, to carry through to the end, to bring a successful conclusion, to reach a goal, to fulfill. So God's saying, if, you, if my word is in you and you're keeping my word, then my love will be perfected. And it's a continual thing. Each day, God's love is perfected in you. He begins to accomplish what? Every day, God is able to accomplish his, his will and his plan for your life. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. So every day as I get in his word, guess what his promise is? Remember, an if, you this, then that. If you get in my word, I will accomplish my will, which you talked about in worship this morning. I will accomplish my will in your life today. And tomorrow, get in my word, and we'll accomplish my will in your life tomorrow. And the next day, get in my word, and we'll accomplish my will in your life that day. And the next day, get in my word, and we'll accomplish my will in your life that day. But get out of the word, get away from God. His will's not being accomplished. It's gonna be your will. It's gonna be your desire. It's gonna be the world. And I can promise you, it's gonna be a mess. I got a lifetime to show you. I've been there, done that. I got 100 t-shirts. Amen? As we remain in his word, the word changes us. As we continually change and are filled with his love and his character, then we see the tangible change of God, as do others, and it becomes confirmation that we are in Christ Jesus and that he is in us. You see, as I continue in God's word each day, and his will each day is accomplished in my life, and the love and the peace and the joy of God is in me, and his character gets in me, and he begins to change me, then all of a sudden, I have tangible evidence. I personally can look back and say, man, God's at work. I see God working. God's taking things away from me that I didn't know I could get rid of. God's moving me this way. I've seen that I'm a lot less selfish than I used to be. I don't talk to people the way I used to. God's changing me. But guess what? Everybody else sees it. People look at you. They say, he's not as big as a jerk as he was the other day. Something's happened to this guy. He's changing. God's changing him. Now there's fruit. Now there's opportunity for the gospel. Now somebody says, what's going on in your life? What, what, what is this change? Or it's an opportunity for you to say, let me tell you what God's doing. Let me tell you where I th- what I thought, but let me tell you how awesome God is. What he, he did far beyond. Ephesians 3.20. Greater than anything I could think or ask. Exceedingly and abundantly greater than anything I could think or ask. That's how big a God we serve. So now there's tangible evidence. Remember, it's not what you take out of a man, what I tell you. It's what you put in a man that changes him. You got to put the word in there. That is the only thing that will change you. That is the only thing that will change you. It won't be a self-help book. It won't be uh, anything else but the Word of God. If you want lifetime, lasting change, and I'm not going to go through the list of all the things that ultimately won't help you, okay, because that would be an inexhaustible list of things that people do to try to change and get the help they need. And some of those things are good, and that's great if those are the things you're doing, but I'm going to tell you what. The bottom line is the bottom line is God's Word. It is the only thing that will truly change a man, woman, or child. Any time or any, excuse me, anyone can give up bad habits for a while, but genuine lifetime changes come only by planting the seed of God's word in your heart daily. And we're going to close in First and Second Thessalonians. Turn there with me. We're going to look at the result of God's word. This is my favorite part. I hope it's yours too. If you're asleep, I hope it's good sleep. You can get the, the CD. Go to First Thessalonians. Hmm. First Thessalonians, chapter one, 
excuse me, chapter 2, verse 13. We're talking about the result. We talked about getting to know God. We talked about experiencing God. We've talked about having to understand God, the importance of God's Word. Nehemiah knew it, and we saw the end result as we'll continue with this lesson through Nehemiah with Brandon. You'll see the incredible supernatural power of God go to work when a people got broken over how they were living. They got broken because they were separated from God. They got broken because they had made all the wrong choices instead of walking with God, and they ended up in captivity. It's sad, but so often we have to go to that place. Amen? You ever had to go to the bottom and all you could do is look up and that's where God met you? It doesn't have to be that way, but so often it is. That's where they were. So now we're going to see what is the result. Coach, I'm going to get in God's word. I need to be, the Bible says he is the word. The Bible says it is the seed I need to put in my heart. The Bible says I need to meditate on it day and night. So what's the result if I do that? Look at second, or 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Paul ministering to the church at Thessalonica. Young Christians. Now get this. These people live in about as immoral a society as you can live in. Every kind of sin you can imagine. And not only that, but being a Christian was not a good thing in this society. If you were a professing Christian, you faced torment and possibly death if they knew it. Listen to this. Paul goes on in verse 13 of chapter 2. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is truth. Remember, we said the word is truth. Amen? The word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul says, hey, we came and preached the gospel. We preached the word of God. And he said, you heard it, not as the words of men. It wasn't a speech, like Paul said, not with the words words of men, lest the cross be made of no effect. Paul said, we preach the word. And he said, you heard the word, not as the words of men, but truth. And then he said, what? What, So what happened? When they heard the word, which was of God, which is God, it said it also effectively works in you who believe. That word effectively comes from the word energeo. And it means that it is a continuance. It is the active operation or working power and its effectual results. In other words, I go to the Word, it's living, it's powerful, and it effectively works in me. When I go in and read God's Word and meditate on God's Word, and I get on my knees and I pray and I seek God's face, not just to will you protect me and pay my bills and thank you for dinner and lay me down to sleep. No, I'm talking about getting before God until God's through with you. I've said it before. Listen, everybody wants Pentecost in their life. What is Pentecost? It's just the power of God showing up in your life. It's like the question I ask my football players. If I asked everyone in this room, how many of you would like to experience Pentecost in your life? Pentecost being when God just shows up in power. How many of you would raise your hand? You would like God to work in power in your life. Seven people. Okay. For you seven folks that want to see God work in power, listen to me. You can't have You can't have Pentecost without a Gethsemane and the cross. You see, before there was ever a Pentecost, before Jesus came in and and breathed the Holy Spirit into his people, there had to be a Gethsemane and a cross. Jesus spent hours and hours praying in the garden. He said he prayed so hard, what? That blood drops came down his face. How many of us have really prayed like that? How many of us have really interceded for our family members, loved ones, and friends who are lost and going to a real place called hell if they don't come to Jesus? How many of us have interceded and really prayed for our families, for our marriages, for our children? Like Jesus, I mean a Gethsemane 
and stayed on our knees. You know, they said when James, uh, when James was, uh, was killed, uh, when he was martyred, they said he had calluses all over his knees from prayer. His knees were real thick and calloused up from prayer. So you got to have a Gethsemane, but you also got to have a cross. What happens at the cross? Death. You got to die to yourself. Remember I said all or nothing? You got to have a prayer life. You got to get in God's word. You got to have a cross. That word will drive you to the cross. The word will drive you to your knees, and it'll make you give those things up that aren't supposed to be a part of your life, and then God begins to make the change. So Paul said, hey, we preach the word to you. You received the word, and it said, and now the word effectively works in you daily. So let's see what happened. Go to 2 Thessalonians. So what happened? Let's look at it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Same people. Paul preached to them. They got saved. Now the word is effectively working in them, and Paul's gotten a report of what happened. So what happened when the word effectively worked? Look at verses 3 through 5. Paul says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. The love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Verse 5, this is the best part, verse 5 which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. They heard the word word of God, they got in the word of God, and, and it changed them. This was a pagan society. I mean, the lust of the flesh, self-centered, contentious spirits, you name it, it was there. And that same people who were living for the devil have now become a people, Paul said, listen, he said, your faith grows exceedingly. The love that you have for one another is abounding toward each other. He says that you have great godly patience. You have great faith. And he says you have godly endurance to go through the tough things that you're going through. How did that happen to these people? Because of the word of God. And in verse five, he says, which is manifest evidence. He says, there's no question. He said, hey, there is no question that Jesus lives in you people's hearts and that you love God because you are walking with him. You have allowed God to change your lives and you are allowing the power of God through his word to effectively work in you every day so that what? He can accomplish his plan for your life every day and then begin to use you. Paul says, we're bragging to other churches about you. You see the words getting out. You know what's interesting is you go on to read, you find out the other churches, they had already heard about it. They had already heard about the awesome supernatural power of God working in this church at Thessalonica. You ever gone to try to tell somebody a story and you go to tell them and they go, I already heard that. That's what was happening. Churches, and guess where Paul went? He went to northern and southern Achaia, went over into Europe. This is Thessalonica, down by the Mediterranean. He went over into Europe, and they had already heard about the supernatural power of God in those people's lives. What might happen in my family and in your family, in our community, in our workplace, if the power of God began to really effectively work? If we got serious about God's Word, and we really decided, you know what? I'm not just going to stop at salvation. I really want to get to know my Savior. And we began to get into God's word every day and let his word effectively change us. And then as his word changed us and made us the husbands and wives and the parents that we needed to be, it made us the believers. So our faith grew exceedingly so that we had love, so there wasn't strife in the home, 
So there wasn't strife in our relationships, but rather the peace of God and the love of God just permeated our lives. What in the world might happen? What kind of effect might that have? If those people heard about a church of Thessalonica over there in northern and southern Achaia, what might happen in this community if we began to do that? If we really got serious about our personal relationship with Christ, an increased faith, abounding love, godly patience, and godly endurance. Here's what we're going to do. I'm asking if we could play some music. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, right where you are. We're going to close.